Uh, welcome to another Sermon Question and Answer podcast, sitting here with Pastor Joey and Pastor Sean, as we'll be discussing some questions from Pastor Sean's sermon on Sunday about church discipline, which is a topic you don't hear from the pulpit a lot, but um, straight out of the Bible, so we're going to preach it. And Sean did a good job handling what that means and uh, what the process should look like. And so we'll dive right into the questions. All right, let's do it. Um, we got a question about kind of the... the the topic of repentance and um, what exactly that looks like for the for the Christian, because um, that's a key part of the church discipline process is yep. calling them to repent of their sin. So yep. um, if you guys maybe wanted to explain that a little bit or teach that a little bit more. Yeah, I always like to, I mean, highlight, not, so I'm going to punt this one over to Pastor Joe in a minute because I know he's actually... Typical. Anything really difficult I give to him. No, he's given us a lot of thought. I mean, I know you've written some papers on it and done some extra study on your in your doctorate work, but I always just like to use the phrase 180-degree turn. You know, it, it's often, probably usually, should come with a degree of sadness over our sin, potentially even tears, but it, but it can't end there. You know, it has to come with turning away from the... Um, the behavior or the sinful pattern that's in your life, or at least working towards righteousness. And so, you know, I think that, <clears throat> I think a lot of times in churches it's easy, I know I can even do this, like when I sit in here, Pastor Joey preach, or Pastor Andrew preach, I can be convicted of my sin, but not, but that's not repentance. I can leave feeling bad, but not having changed, you know, and so I think, I think a big part of even this week's sermons, that's where community comes in to help us change and, and work towards growing to be more like Christ. So, I was glad you were finally brave enough to admit that you were a, a bad driver mm-hmm. corporately. Yeah. So, well, I've admitted that before. We, yeah. Any Anybody coming to church same time I'm coming to church, just swinging into that turn lane off Victory. That's dangerous. It's not, it's, not, it's not out of the question for me to come across three or four lanes to get in that turn lane. So do what you got to do. You got to do, do what you got to do. That's how we drive That's in New like York, Baltimore, the Northeast. If you're not first, you're last. <laughs> Bobby, Bobby, Ricky, Bobby, or whatever. Ricky, Bobby. Ricky, Bobby. Bobby. <laughs> there we go. First, you're last. Lived my whole life. Oh, um, so I, I mean, repentance is, uh, I, I like to tell people that it's a work, that's a work of a believer and it's a gift from God. So the, the unconverted um, person doesn't even have the capacity to repent because that's only something that a, a heart that's being regenerated by the Holy Spirit can, can do. And so, um, if you are a repentive person, you should praise God for that because that's a, a gift for, from Him, this precious gift from Him. He loved you so much um, that He is increasing your love for Christ and your hatred for sin. And so that is uh, precious. Um, so so first and foremost, it's a gift from God. Um, secondly, it's something that only a, a regenerated person can do, a believer can do. Um, and then thirdly, if we gave it a definition, uh, I like to lean into, um, I think, uh, an old Puritan, Thomas Watson, gave uh, one of the better definitions that I've heard, which is this perpetual fast from sin. And so that doesn't mean this out of eternity, uh, we're going to be sinless, uh, but in Christ, we can resolve ourselves against sin perpetually as our love for Christ increases, hatred for sin increases. So it should be this perpetual fast from sin. And and um, Thomas Watson uh, pulls from uh, um, 
is it First Corinthians seven, I believe, that is the um, uh, godly grief versus worldly grief. <coughs> uh, I can't remember if it's First or Second Corinthians. It may be Second Corinthians, but uh, the um, there is such thing as a a worldly grief that leads to death, and a godly grief that leads to repentance. Um, there's a lot of people that um, have worldly grief, right? So there's this ongoing shame, this ongoing guilt for this sin that's been committed, but that's where it stays. The Apostle Paul calls that worldly grief, and that leads to death. A godly grief contains a shame for for sin, a brokenness for sin, um, but it also moves toward this repentance. Uh, it moves toward this savoring of the finished work of Jesus Christ, and and so there's movement in it. is a is a key difference between worldly grief and godly grief that leads to repentance. And so Watson gives us, and I'll try to remember them all, but six ingredients if we were to evaluate our repentance. Okay, which repentance do I have? Do I have a worldly one? Do I have a godly one? Um, we can evaluate it, and um, and the ingredients that are contained that should be present, um, first and foremost, is sight for sin. Right. Do, do you see your sin as primarily a sin against God, and then secondarily a sin against other people? Do you agree with the Scriptures about uh, your state apart from Christ? Um, secondly, is there a sorrow for sin? You, know, you should be broken over that. It, it, it should grieve you. Um, thirdly, there should be a shame for sin. Right? There, there is uh, such thing, I believe, as this embarrassment for the sin uh, even Adam and Eve uh, showed shame f- for sin when they tried to sew the loincloths together together to cover it. Right? Uh, that, that's, there's elements there of this works-based salvation that we don't want, but there was the shame knowing that um, they had transgressed God's commandment. Um, and then there uh, should move us toward, so you have sight for sin, sorrow for sin, shame for sin, and then there should be this um uh this hatred for sin right as as we grow to cherish Christ more uh, we begin to love more the things that he loves and we begin to hate more the things that he hates and so when we examine the broader culture you know the the and on social media it seems like our uh uh, sins aren't increasing as time goes on, but we're more connected and more aware to all the chaos of this world due to technology. And so it seems like there's more sin than has ever existed in, in the history of the world, but it's just that we're now uh, more aware of it and more in touch with it because we're constantly in touch with people that we don't even know. Um, and so... Uh, uh, and, as a believer, it should grieve me to see people drowning in their own sin and they don't even realize it. And 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 more than that, right? Get the log out of my own eye before I remove the speck out of someone else's eye. I should not say, "Man, look at those sinners, how sad." But I should say, "But by the grace of God, there go I." Right? I, I'm, I'm Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, and and so worst case. Best case scenario or worst case scenario, okay, I'm I'm the second worst sinner that's ever lived, and it's probably good for me to think of myself as such. Um, 
and then there should be this turning from sin, right? The hatred of sin should should lead us toward this. I think you're uh, ranking yourself a little low. This turning, I could be. <laughs> <laughs> this this uh this turning from sin, and and so and and then the the movement piece of that, the turning is when the apostle Paul in Romans chapter seven, right? He's he's aware of his own sinful heart, and I believe he's at. Uh, I've said this before, even on this podcast. I think he's at. Uh, a peak point in his spiritual maturity. He's aware of the plagues of his heart. He says, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Uh, And then he says, in this moment of desperation, what a wretched man I am. Uh, If it were to stay there, that could be classified as a worldly grief, but it doesn't stay there. It moves into, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That's the movement. That's the difference between worldly grief and godly grief is we understand while we could call ourselves the chief of sinners, because we're in Christ, that's no longer our primary identity. We are Our primary identity is now that we are in Christ. Um, and so and to not recognize that and not move toward that and consider that in this process of this gift of repentance that the Lord has given us would mean that we are um, maybe uh, dabbling in worldly sorrow, not in godly sorrow. Um, and so... That's, that was thorough. You answered the rest of the questions I had. Yeah, we're done. That's it. No, actually, uh, Pastor Joe taught us in our staff recently that, and so it, and, and you taught the men's breakfast, and so yeah. But I, you've talked so. about it too, Pastor Sean. About um, you even said it on Sunday about the freedom we have now to fight against sin, and there might be the struggle that we have, but um, you know, people are either on the path to death or the path to life, and. Even even though we're on the path of life, we still struggle with mm-hmm. sin, and we st- and we'll we'll stumble. But the key mark of a Christian is the repentance piece of it. That's where I like what you said too about in Matthew. When you talk about Matthew eighteen and the process that Jesus lays out for church discipline, the one on one confrontation most of the time is all that it takes because a true Christian will is humble enough to see yeah. this the sin in his life. And I think when 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 the Spirit of God lives inside of you, you do recognize how, even though you may have not have taken a sin to its full consequence, you understand the greater consequences of continuing in that sin, um, you know, where it could lead. And that makes for me that makes me hate it. Like, man, I hate this, you know. Um, so, God in His grace often sometimes protects us probably from our own consequence of sin. Um, Next question is, um, in in the context of marriage, what what does someone do when they have a a spouse who claims to be a Christian but is living in unrepentant sin? This could go a lot of ways, so, um, and, and would probably, there's a lot of details to this you could unpack. Since I don't have any details, I will just, I'll lean into 1 Corinthians 7. Um, where Paul is challenging the, and we're going to cover this in a couple of weeks. Paul's challenging the Corinthian church to remain as they are, so for the sake of the gospel. Um, so actually, I'm going to be preaching a sermon uh, that I've never preached at Coastal. To my embarrassment, a little bit is on being single and the value that Paul gives to being single, and and how how that can be incredibly valuable for the kingdom of God. If you give your full efforts. The kingdom, but remaining as you are, he's answering. He actually in chapter six, chapter seven, maybe he begins to answer some questions that the Corinthians have given him. Apparently, because he he kind of says, "Hey, here's the answer to your question." 
Well, we don't necessarily know how I got those questions. Maybe someone tweeted tweeted it to him. <laughs> like that? Huh? It's good. Very yeah. Okay, first Corinthians seven, and Paul says verse I guess we'll start at twelve. To the rest I say, I uh that if a bro- I not the Lord, if a uh any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and can he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Verse fourteen. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Um, But if an unbelieving partner, verse 15, separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Verse 16, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And so um, so I think Paul's instruction is um, that if you have an unbelieving spouse, that staying with them gives the hope of giving the living both modeling the gospel with the hope of them receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul encourages us to remain married in those situations. Um, now, on this question, I'm assuming is in the context of discipline, you know. So I, you know, I don't, I don't really have a lot of biblical grounds for that. I would, you know, I would probably lean into the believing spouse, um, since Matthew 18 begins with, "Hey, you, you confront the person one on one." To me, that would be spouse to spouse. Um, at which point, then, you know, if that spouse wanted to bring in the church. Um, church leadership at that point, I would do that, but I would lean into the spouse. That's about as much wisdom as I could come up with off the cuff on that question. I think that's good and safe because I think that sticks to the Scripture for sure. I, I mean, I, I read especially First Corinthians 7 and uh, re- reading it with my uh, knowing me. Um, I, in my heart of hearts, there's always this restlessness of... Uh, or this lie that I believe, if I can only get to this point, then everything will be right. And then when you get at this point, if I can only be at this point, there's this constant movement or this constant place I feel like I'm trying to get sometimes. And the Apostle Paul, I think, may be dealing with this type of anxiousness with the Corinthian church here. And essentially, he's saying both to singles and to married, stay put, stay where you are, and glorify God where you are. And uh, and I think there's something to be said of that, and and so you, um, we're we're a people, uh, especially here that I mean we could we could be looking for, um, you know, I, I picture him ministering to this church where maybe these maybe there are these uh, folks that claim to be spiritually mature that are looking at their spouse and saying, man, they're, uh, you know, I they, they don't have it together like I do, they're holding me back let me let me start over uh, or you know maybe they both got married as unbelievers they became converted under the preaching ministry of, of Paul or Apollos uh, one of them did one of them didn't so what what now and and Paul seems to be saying obedience to God is to stay as you are um, and I and that seems to have this eternal ramification that we can't see this out of eternity uh, on the unbelieving spouse. And so 
there's a great commission aspect to staying put, staying in this marriage that seems horrible so far as it depends on you. Again, Paul lets it go. If they abandon you, there's nothing you can do about that. But so far as it depends on you, staying put and honoring the Lord and loving them in spite of their sin and in spite of their unbelief is obedience to God. Um, and and we can trust that God will give us the grace to endure that season. Yeah, and in regard, I mean, the the question is being asked too in the in the context of church discipline, right? So, I'm assuming part of the question is, do we want to? Would we discipline an unbelieving spouse? So, and there's a couple ways to come to that question. First of all, did the spouse ever claim to be a believer and was a member of and coastal? We I'd ask the question: Were they ever a member of coastal? That's one journey. That's one way of movement. The other one is if they never claim to be a believer, and in either case, the Apostle Paul says the believing spouse makes the the house holy. I don't think that means it means they're going to heaven, but I do think it means that there is a spiritual component in the home because of a believing spouse. Um, So that might give me pause to do church discipline um, as long as there's a believing spouse that is working, uh, remaining, and representing the gospel in the home but yeah it's a great question and there's a lot of particulars that i think you'd have to take on a case by case you know so good and 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 i think you know one of the things i I hope the church body got this week like in hindsight i wish i'd maybe spent a little bit of time on was the idea of hey church discipline's no trifling matter like it's not something at coastal that any leader desires to do it, it that's a last resort um you know our desires to see people is restoration to see people repent of their sins and you know can continue to grow spiritually uh, closer to christ so it's it's i know for me when i liked when paul said and again, this is another thing. I was like, man, I probably should have spent more time on that. He says we should mourn. There should be a mourning over this sin. This man's in your midst. You, you all should be mourning, you know. And I, I got, I got to thinking about the times that there's been someone in my life I've known, a spiritual leader, and they were caught, you know, caught in sexual sin. I mean, it's grieving to me. It hurts. I mean, I, it's like a gut punch, you know, when we hear that. And I think that's the mourning piece. And when I think about church discipline and going all the way to the end result of that. Where you're turning someone over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, and uh, that's a terrifying. It's not something church leaders want to do. I, it, it's awful. It's awful when you get to that point. So um, it's very humbling and it's very weighty. So um, I think we have time for. We could squeeze one more question in. Um, you spent time in your sermon, you know, pointing out that this process that we're talking about of what we call church discipline mm-hmm. is um, designed to, for somebody who calls himself a Christian, who is a member of, uh, for us at Coastal, is a mem- calls themselves a, a Christian and is a member of Coastal, um, they go through this process. If they're, if they're seen in sin and they need to be called out on sin, and then they go through the process and they still refuse to repent, at that point we remove the title of, of member right. from them at Coastal. So we're talking about, in this context, church discipline is for the someone who claims to be a believer. Correct. 
But we have people that attend Coastal that would not claim to be believers, but still come to Coastal. Probably many that, that are claim to be believers. But well, still come yes, to but in the for this question, there's people that come to Coastal that are seeking something, and right. and may, maybe not they don't see they don't see the. Um, they're not yet they're believers, not, they're but not they're not regular believers. attenders. They're regular attenders. Right. What do you do with those people? And at that point, they're we would call them lost, right? And they're acting like lost people, right? How do we handle that within yeah, the, the walls of coastal, right? And I think the converse question is equally true when when we're instructed to treat Jesus said treat them like an unbeliever, a Gentile, and tax like so. How do you treat a believer like a lost person? Yet at coastal, we're excited when lost people attend to hear the gospel. What's the difference, right? And so. Um, and so when, if a person's claiming to be lost and they're coming in and they're acting lost, there's as a church body, we give them grace so that they hear the gospel and they repent. Of, we want them to repent of their sin and believe in Jesus Christ and begin the journey. And the great thing about the gospel is I don't clean a person up. You don't clean a person up. It's not the moral police. The Holy Spirit cleans a person up. And um, so I've always celebrated lost people being in our midst investigating the claims of Christ. And so I've even often shied away in my later years from this idea of the seeker-sensitive movement. And uh, the word I like to use now is understandable. We should make what our teaching and the Scriptures understandable to lost people. Um, and so there's a, and that could encompass a lot of things. So um, as opposed to a person that is an unbel- is a claiming to be a believer, yes, I'm a Christian, but they're in habitual unrepentant sin— at that point, I think you actually, because Paul goes on to talk about not eating with this person and not fellowshipping with this person, that they are actually removed from the fellowship. Um, and so, and I talked about this when we, in Timothy, um, I think it was Timothy 5, um, talks about how to handle an accusation against an elder. I actually spent some time in that series a couple summers ago on, uh, uh, so when, when Christ has taken to the church, there's been some discipline issues at Coastal that we didn't bring in front of Sunday morning service, you know, because this was a this person didn't have a lot of influence. We brought this person's name before their small group, before the ministries they were involved in. Say, hey, this person's not welcome at Coastal until these steps of restoration or repentance restoration are taken. Now, if it was an elder or a pastor or a high level leader, it would be you know the more you're influenced, the broader the the scope of people that would know. Um, so that the person could be turned over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so they could repent. I don't know if that answers your question, but... I, I think one piece so. in First Corinthians 5, uh, and I'd love to hear you sp- speak to this a little bit, The because um, you spent some time on it Sunday, starting with verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know a little leaven? Leaven's the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And then he goes on, I wrote to you in my letter, not associated with the sexually immoral people, and he uh, goes on about it. But maybe, isn't there something to be said? I think too many times when we think of our sins, we think too individualistically. Paul's challenging the church at Corinth to think corporately about their sins mm. as a body. And, and, and church discipline, someone who's professing to be a believer, the reason why 
you're you begin to treat them as an unbeliever and you're not treating them as an unbeliever the way that you treat a person who claims to be an unbeliever is because the seriousness of their sin is tainting in in a sense the body of Christ. I don't know the how all that works out, but isn't Paul preaching about this corporate, this individual sin is becoming this corporate sin because this church is tolerating this sin of this professing believer uh, and in some ways encouraging it, worst case, by not addressing it, or best case, by not addressing it, worst case, by just encouraging it, yeah. And so I didn't know if you had any thoughts about the corporateness of sin um, that I think falls, we're, we're so personal liberty, personal freedom, like we're, we think so individualistic as an American culture that um, to me that's just something I think that can fall, uh, that can be neglected when we're reading the scripture as, as, as Paul seems to think more corporately about the sins of the church. Well, I think That's the big lie of sin, right? It doesn't hurt anyone else. My sin is not, it's just affecting me, um, which is the big lie. And so certainly it hurts the, the testimony of the church. And, and I think the reason after, you know, again, going back to the context, three chapters essentially on reminding us who we are in Christ, live up to your name, live up to your name. Chapter four, here's my authority as the apostle. In chapter five, now let's deal with something. Like let's, we're getting into the the diff the where the world is being adopted into the life of this church, and so um, and again, this the overarching theme is unity, oneness, one body. So yeah, the very first thing we're doing with is celebrated habitual sin in our body it needs to be dealt with because it's affecting the whole testimony of this church. Um, I also think, and maybe along the similar lines, I know one of the questions maybe. We, not really going to get to is I, I kept using the idea of, you know, if you're on the pathway to death, as if salvation can be earned. And that was the, the push of the question, which is an excellent question. Um, I think probably, of course, I don't believe salvation is earned, earned for us by the works of Christ, received by grace through faith, through repentance and believing in Christ. But however, there is an element to our journey that in the American church we don't take very seriously. And I, and I highlighted this in Hebrews 3. When I talked about kind of this, this, you know, a believer believes all the way to the end of their life, the perseverance of the saints, the saint per- perseveres to the end, and then we, in community, we do that together. We encourage each other to persevere in the faith to the end. We need each other. There's, there's moments that we all wane. There's moments we all get discouraged, and we need each other. So Hebrews three twelve, take care, brothers, lest any of you be in an any of you in an uh, evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living of God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I think even in the believer, we have to recognize, even though we're freed up to do battle with sin, we always have to have a, what's the word I'm looking for, a, a humility to our own humanity, that, man, I am capable of that. Sin is could deceive me, and even as a professing believer, I am capable because sin still resides in me until we get to heaven. Um, I have to be cautious of my own heart. Verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ, and indeed we hold on to our original confidence firm to the end. And so there's the community aspect of my brothers 
in Christ coming around me and we journey together, holding one another accountable to, to, to seeing our profession to the end of our lives. So that doesn't happen in, in American church. It's an individualized Christianity. You can feed your spiritual life online with all the great preachers in America, podcasts, videos, whatever, and you don't need community. And I think when that happens, you're missing out on this aspect of if there's a habitual sin in your life and it's deceiving you and you don't have brothers and sisters in Christ around you, you're, you're trusting way too much in your own heart and it should your own sinful nature should terrify you a little bit and humble you. When I'm living in isolation, it's a lot easier for me to rationalize my sin mm-hmm. than when I'm engaged with. Or have a blind spot. Yeah. yeah, have a blind spot. That, you know, no one else can point it out to you. So, is that it? All right. That's it. That's it. Good questions this week. Good questions. Thank um, you all for a tough submitting them. Yes. Tough topic, but a good topic to, to cover. Um, thank you for submitting your questions. As always, you can email them to sermonquestions at gocoastal.org. Um, get them in by Tuesday afternoon, and we'll work them into the podcast. Thank you, guys. Thanks.